0: Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast, this is episode 217 and this is again another previous guest of the podcast come back on, a guest from way back on episode 66 which was actually recorded on the 3rd of March 2020 and that is now head of fitness at Hadjock Split, Ian Cole. Ian came on and we discussed about some of the lessons he's taken working across different countries and cultures. We also talked about whether there was a moment in his career where he felt like it developed him the most as a practitioner. And he gives a great example of that as well. So make sure you listen out for that one. We spoke about how he's gone about applying his methodologies across the numerous roles and clubs and coaches that he's worked with. And also he is currently working or will be working towards his pro license as well. So we discussed the reasons why behind that. And also his his future plans for his career as well. So there's loads of great information in this one. It's a really enjoyable episode. I certainly enjoyed speaking to Ian. And I said we will definitely get one in the future as well when he looks to progress into um, coaching. So yeah, listen out for that. Now it's great because I've had quite a few messages recently from people asking about when's the next networking event, um, I need to get them in my diary, I need to make sure I'm free and I'm not just doing it to frustrate you, We, as soon as we get the information confirmed for the events next year, we will be releasing all the dates. We've got loads of coaches and, and clubs that are interested in hosting so um, hopefully there will be an event near you. So just keep an eye out on socials, Football Fit Fed over on Twitter and Instagram. And also, if you're not on our email list, we do send an early, update, early updates or um, alerts out to our email list. So go to footballfitfed.com and you'll be able to join our email list there. And yeah, you'll get any sort of updates on meetings as soon as they're confirmed. And you'll be able to purchase your ticket and get them into your diaries as well. Just before we get to the episode, I want to say a huge thank you to our sponsors. First of all, Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction for recovery? Hytro have developed the world's first BFR wearable, unlocking the recovery benefits of BFR to support athletes. BFR is no longer just for one-to-one physio or rehab. Hytro allows teams to use this safe and scalable sports BFR po- uh, device post-exercise to dramatically enhance recovery. Whether in the change room post-game, during away game travel, in the hotel or at home, Hytro has created a simple and effective tool that allows BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously, safely, and more conveniently than ever before. So go and check them out at Hytro.com. Or you can email Warren, that's Warren Bradley, on Warren at Hytro.com to find out how Hytro BFR can give your athletes a competitive edge. And it's great to see loads of Premier League clubs and Football League clubs all investing in Hydro I'm constantly keeping up with all the updates over on socials and it's great to see loads of clubs investing in their recovery. So if you are interested, make sure you drop Warren an email on warren at hytro.com also huge thank you to our sponsors Rezel, again doing some amazing work in the world of vr go and check them out at rezzle over on socials instagram twitter keep up to date with all the great work that they're doing across football but other sports as well and let's get into it now episode 217 with ian cole Rezl is the world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Whatever your team, your sport, your ability, improve your game and train like a pro. Rezzl, Rezzl. Reactions, performance, accuracy, stamina, resilience. Train at home in the Rezl Sports & Fitness VR Training Arena. Search Rezl, R-E-Z-Z-I-L. Harder, stronger, smarter. The world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Available now on MetaQuest. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 217. I'm delighted to welcome back onto the podcast. This is an overdue episode. Ian Cole. Ian, thank you for coming back on. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for introducing us. I can't remember
1: the first time we did this podcast. 217.
0: Hey, so <laughs> your your previous one was episode 66. Which... Was it 66? Wow. <laughs> Great effort, man. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you, mate. Well, there's a, I know there's a lot changed change for yourself as well, which I want to dive into in a second. Um, but what I would say for anyone listening, go back and listen to that previous episode because we touched on loads of great stuff. We're, we're not going to probably touch on as much because I think we went a little bit more into periodization and a few other topics. So go and listen to that because there's some great stuff in there. And then obviously we're going to um, have a bit of a catch up on what you've been doing since that episode um, and what's been going on as well. So, Ian, anyone that's not listened to that previous one? doesn't know too much about you. I've not even mentioned your role yet, which is head of currently head of fitness a slash assistant coach at Hadjuk Split over in yep. Croatia. Um, so do you want to just take us back, mate? Take us through the career that's what, what's led up to this point so far?
1: Yeah, we were just catching up a little bit off, you know, the recording I've been. This is my 17th season now, so it's been a, a long, long... Uh, not long, it feels long now, and I talk about it 17 years, but it doesn't feel 17 years. But I started you know, way back in a, a small club, Airdrie, Airdrie United, which was the first division club in Scotland. While I was at university, I volunteered there, um, and worked there for like a year and a half while I was studying. And then I went into the, the club full-time, uh, unpaid role, actually. So I finished my degree and went into that role unpaid uh, full-time. Uh, the coach at the time actually put me down as a, a player budget, so I was actually on the player register so mm-hmm. they could register a salary for me, which was £75 a week. So <laughs> it's been you know, 17 years, a long time. £75 a week was my first job in football. But from there, I progressed after one year full-time to Celtic, the academy. And I was four years in the academy, uh, moving to head of, head of the academy role. And then I moved to the first team for three and a half years, almost four years and in head of sports science there. And then really my career took a change. Uh, when my son was born and I progressed out the club uh, and take some time off and was off for about eight months and I moved to Dubai uh, to be a consultant there with the Federation and worked with some football clubs out there, working with individual players. And really it was a break to watch my, my son grow up and we thought he'd be there for three years. But the opportunity came at, at Ludigritz. I actually did a presentation two years prior uh, on sports science, just the sports science department at Celtic. And they actually contacted me via LinkedIn and uh, this is after a year in Dubai and asked I coming up upset the sports science department with And that's really where my sort of European campaign started. Uh, three years with Ludigates in Bulgaria, Razgrad, uh, winning the league there and competing in Europe. Uh, the last season we finished, actually in the COVID year, we qualified out the group stage, the last, last 16 played into Milan and uh, Trenton so Milan was like the, the mecca of like COVID at the time so we actually flew into Milan <laughs> as the COVID was gone it was it was insane I've never experienced anything like it but you know it's a different time and you know it's one to put in the memory bank and then from there really progressed to Romania so we're working for Lurgut and Bulgaria there was three international players there they recommended me to the club in Romania said you know the club want to move forward with their sports signs but they also want you to to put down some coaching methodology. They wanted to change the style there. So my role progressed from head of sports science to head of performance. Um, And the owner was really keen to bring a a sort of European possession style, Spanish style football. Um, And heard me speak about tactical periodization, knew the way that Celtic played, knew the way Luregots played, and wanted to change his team, Craiova, in uh, Romania. So I was there for three years. And then... So sort I of worked out, we won, the, we didn't win the league, we won the cup and we finished third in the league and we just didn't progress and I just feel the club wasn't progressing the way I thought it would progress. The style of football changed then from possession back to counter-attack. It's not really what I wanted to do in terms of my career in coaching and sports science. I wanted to develop like a possession style team. So my goals didn't align with the, the team and uh, the opportunity came with an old coach, uh, Lurgritz, He moved to Hajduk Split and uh, we just, discussed over a year and eventually I came here and that's how I've ended up at Haidwick Split and I've been here now one year so that's three teams across the Balkans in 17 years in Dubai and uh, eight years in, and nine years in Scotland so it's brilliant Great.
0: people get a real indication now why I wanted to get you back on um, so much because for someone like yourself that's been in not only a number of roles under a number, a number of coaches and uh, crazy amounts of players that you probably worked with in that time as well. One thing I was going to ask, you for for all listeners I think would be really interesting is, what are some of the key lessons that you've taken from working across, again, coaches, different players, but mainly different countries, different cultures?
1: Yeah, again, we spoke about this. You know, the one thing, and I didn't actually realise this until I left Celtic, you know, I was there eight years, almost eight years, and every day was like eight o'clock to eight o'clock. So you're 12 hours, and it was pressure all the time, under pressure from, you know, the board, the chief executive, the players, the new managers, the players were demanding. The performance always had to be high. Innovation was new at that time. Sports science research was huge. There was new equipment coming out. There's new software coming out. We were always trying to be the, the forefront of performance because Celtic, to compete in the Champions League, everything has to be 1% up to maximise the players. So it was pressure all the time, and it was a lot of pressure. I just felt... I'm not doing my job. I'm not maximizing what I feel I can do because I'm always under pressure and things are always changing. So I, I really didn't think that we were, were reaching a real methodology goal in terms of performance, which we were because we were competing. But when I left in that year in Dubai and I, I sat down to reflect and, you know, wrote, went through my notebook and looked at all my notes and tried to design my own methodology when I go back to a club, I really thought that I'm on. I have learned a lot. You know, I really have learned a lot in terms of what I've been doing, you know, and then when I moved to other clubs, I seen problems quicker. Uh, I seen things I can just move past quicker. So my experience there was huge. Although at that, that time, I didn't think that. Uh, so when I went to a new club in, in Bulgaria, I knew what equipment to get. I knew what software to get. I knew what research to go to. Uh, I knew who to contact if I needed something in terms of software. I needed some advice. But I seen problems on the pitch with the coach and I seen problems on the gym. I can move the gym quickly. I knew what to spend my time on that was effective with the players and not to waste time on other things. So I felt I got quicker goals when I went to Lureguets, maybe than I did at Celtic, although it wasn't true. But going to that new environment, because of the experience I had, it allowed me to really adapt quicker to the environment. And that was the same in in Romania, because I went there with my plan. But when I arrived there, I realised, wow, the culture's different. The environment's different. The players don't feel, don't talk the same language as I'm used to. So what I, I had planned, I really had to change. And um, I've said that so many times to, to young sports scientists, is have a plan, yes, have your methodology, but be ready to tear it up and move somewhere else in the first day because it might not work for you. You have to feel, feel the moment, feel the environment, feel the players, get the feedback from all the people around, not just, Um, the the football staff football players it could be the cleaner it could be the chef because they're the ones that speak to the players every day they get feedback on the last six coaches that have been there what the players like what they don't like you know find out the players who will tell you the truth on day one you know and you can really trust them build up relationships with them so all this work at Celtic helped me and allowed me to do that through the experience and that continued Bulgaria Romania and then now
0: at Haiduk and with that in as well because it That's been probably echoed by a lot of other people that have come on the podcast when they first step into a role. Yes, you can have a plan, but like you said, you have to respect what's in place already because there might be things that you don't know about. But with that in mind as well, what sort of a timescale do you give that before you start sort of cranking up, right? We've got to start pushing things now because you can obviously sit back and it might be a week or whatever, right? Understand a little bit more about what's going on. Is it just after that time we start saying, right, now this is how we're going to take the step forward or how long would you would you take to do something like that?
1: So one thing I really learned and again, it was by complete accident when I went to Bulgaria, uh, the, the, the manager, the owner at Lodrigut said there's a new coach coming in in two weeks. I don't want you to do anything with the team. I want you to observe and give me feedback via report that I want you to present to me and only me So I was like, wow, this is strange. This is very, he doesn't want me to work with the players. And the head coach was saying, Ian, take the warm-up. And I said, I was like, no, I can't take the (laughs) warm-up. The owner's told me I can It's very strange, you know, so I'm just watching. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I was just observing, you know, and after two weeks, it felt really strange, but I gave the report to the owner and he said, okay, I, I know about this, I know about this, I didn't know about this, okay, we need to change this. And then he backed and gave me a lot of money to do what I wanted to do. So I was very, very lucky. And when I arrived at Lourdes, the players were ready to, to change and bring a more European philosophy, not Balkans or Eastern European philosophy. They were ready for change because of the European players. So it was really easy there. But that experience, when I went to Romania, allowed me to say to the owner at Cryova, look, this is my experience. Give me five days to not work with the team, to allow me to assess the situation so I can make the best decisions based on what I see on the ground for the team moving forward. And I, I said to them that's a non-negotiable for me because I can make mistakes. And this is the reason why, if I go and change everything and I make mistakes, I'll lose the team. Yeah, And if I'm here, going to be here for three years, it's beneficial for you to allow me to have those three days. And I don't feel that that's me being, uh, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, you have to trust me. Um, and those five days and then giving the report, in Romania was was excellent again. And all the players bought into it because they could see that I was assessing the situation. So actually the the off chance the in, in, in ludicrous that allowed me to do that and continue that experience in, in Romania was, was so helpful. Um, that situation wasn't the same here in Haiduk because I came with the coach and the coach had the power and said, just change it from day one. Just change it. Let's deal with it. Let's like speak to the players. Let's change it on day one. But there's certain things that I still held that they did at the club that I felt I'm not going to change because I spoke to the players and the players maybe liked doing it, even though if I didn't agree with it. So in terms of like time scales, it depends what really you want to change and why. And yeah. it's something like, say, the gym session, and they all need to do max strength. I don't believe in max strength. I believe in power work. That's something I would change straight away. But I would have that meeting with the players uh, to allow them to understand why I'm changing that to get the buy-in. Um, so it depends. It depends on what it is you're trying to change and how long. But in terms of changing culture, I don't think you you can affect culture, but you can't change culture. So to affect it positively, you need buy-in. You need the human side. Things that all the guys you've had on and girls you've had on speak about. You know, you need that buy-in from, from players, the human side of things. You know, you can't be authoritarian, dictatorship. Sometimes you maybe need that to get the best out of the players, but in terms of culture change. it takes time. And that can be three months, six months. It depends, like, the team, how they are. Romania was mostly Romanian players, so it was a big culture effect there. Um, And in Bulgaria, it was, like, Bulgarian, European, and African. So, in Brazilian. So there was, like, four four subgroups there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they all had their own influence and culture, but it was actually easier to bring them together, like, all the influences under one roof. Uh, But Romania was very, very unique because it was a Romanian club with Romanian players, Romanian culture. So to affect that was more difficult because you really have to speak to the players and negotiate with them and sit down and say, this is good for your performance and show them why you give them the data and get buy-in and change small things to change big things. So Romania was probably a slower process compared to uh, Hajduk and uh, Lurugrits, but both, both very rewarding for different reasons.
0: Yeah, I know. It's really interesting that that whole experience as a practitioner, as well, under not only different countries and different leagues, but like we mentioned, the managers, the the players, even the situations of maybe a club being towards the bottom of the league compared to the top of the league, being successful or not. Like there's so many different factors that go into it, isn't it? That that you have to get experience as a practitioner.
1: Yeah, it's it's sticking to the process, you know, and I would say in the hard moments, in the hard moments, people will change the process, Yeah, uh, especially coaches. So in that moment, they lose one game or draw one game, they change the process. And it's a real fight for, for someone like me, you know, because I sit down and say, we've had success. We've had success up until now. You've lost one game or drawn one game for whatever reason we can do the analysis on. Don't change something now. You know, and the classic one is give them an extra day off or let's do more running or let's do an extra gym session. And my answer my question is why? Yeah. Why? If you can tell me why, then we can think about making the change. But we can't do the change unless we know the why. And then what the outcome is going to be. You know, so for me, that's difficult for coaches. Uh, because they feel they need to change the environment to get a different stimulus, and sometimes that 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 can be true. You know, it might be a day off, but it's a team building day. Mm. Absolutely okay. I'm all for that. That's different. But to change the the training process and something non negotiables that you have you have at the club that is your part of your methodology. When you change that, I think the players recognize it, and they see they see weakness, and uh, that's a key thing. And I've seen that happen so many times with coaches. And I always try to say to the coach, "Please don't change it. Please don't change it. I've seen it done before. The players will notice, and it will have an effect on you as a head coach. But ultimately, the head coach is the decision maker, and he's he's the one that is you know his head's on the line. Is the normally say you know. So he had, he does have the final say, but I think you've got to be careful. And again, it's easy as a young practitioner. If we speak about a young practitioner, goes abroad to work in a club, and they put down their methodology, and it's not going so well, and then they change it because the players want it changed, you lose, I don't want to say power, but you, you lose uh, respect. You mm-hmm. lose respect. And Because you fought so hard to put that in place, and maybe the players are, are buying into it, but they're maybe still giving you a little bit of a hard time, you know, because players will do that. But they've bought into it because they're doing it. And then when you change it under their pressure, it becomes very difficult for you. Very, very difficult.
0: If we could touch on Arian, we just had a conversation before we recorded about this fine line between with young practitioners mainly, but I suppose practitioners of all different um sort of ages as well. On from that your perspective, someone that's been through these different experiences, when you're working with someone at the club or even speaking to someone, and you're trying to get this message across of like trust in the process, you've set these systems in place for a reason, these are your non-negotiables. Well, then you get in this high stress environment and, and people will change, won't they? How do you find the line of getting them to learn themselves and go through them experiences themselves and maybe changing their approach and realizing it wasn't the right thing to do against you saying, this is what you need to do and stick to it. Like where, where's the balance for you with that?
1: Well, that's a a good question. (laughs) Again, I hate saying it, but it's situational. Everything's obviously situational, but I think if we're speaking about, a methodology or something you fundamentally agree in that should be in the program. So, uh, okay, let's take sprinting, let's take running. You do match day minus two because you believe the research says that I need to do match day minus two, minimum of three sprints uh, to protect the hamstring going into the, the game in two days' time. So that's your non-negotiable. You believe in that you've done that for years. If you get to a club and the, you do that with the players and this is a new routine for them and give an instance, a player picks up hamstring injury, and now blames it on the sprinting that you've been doing, you know, for the last couple of weeks. And the players have been telling the head coach that we don't like the sprinting, we get fatigued, you know, because it's new for them. And then one player gets injured, there's a bad performance, and the players will then ultimately blame you because of sprinting, because they're trying to protect themselves. It happens all the time. Not all the players, but one want to. For me, this is non-negotiable. So that situation for me arises there's two things for me you haven't explained correctly to the head coach or the players the rationale for doing that methodology choice so then you leave yourself wide open to be attacked if you want for for better words being attacked by players or people around know, board members or sporting director. so you leave yourself open so that'd be the first one to make sure that you really identify your methodology and the reason why you're doing it and give that very clear to players and staff so you have support from them so it doesn't come back in the future and um, if it happens then another scenario crops up the manager says i want to change it because the players are saying so because they're saying they're tired that becomes a lot harder for you as a practitioner to say where am i going to go with this now because the head coach is making a decision but if you believe that that injury or that performance wasn't down to to the sprint that you were doing then i think you need to stay strong in terms of what you believe in in your philosophy and um, I don't want to say die in your own sword because you know you don't want to lose your job but if you believe in that ultimately then I think you do have to sort of be strong on it and mm-hmm. again try to not educate but give the reasons why you're doing it and why you're trying to help the players and you don't believe that that situation has affected the performance of the player negatively Um, it could have just been a you know, occurrence on that day and it could have happened whether you sprinted or not sprinted and certainly the performance would not have been perfect Um, affected so you have to sort of analyze what's happened, why, and really identify how how you will communicate that in the future better, maybe uh, from the insertion point of the methodology to the incident that
0: happened. So I think that's a great bit of advice. Yeah, I think I think that's really that'll make sense to a lot of people as well, because it's a real, really good example. And obviously, there's going to be other examples similar to that. Um yeah. But it does come down to, I suppose, the preparation beforehand. And that, and then also, it's picking the experience up to be able to cre- create your methodologies and your non-negotiables, isn't it? Because that's something we've not touched on. You've got to have the experience in bank for you to have them in play, haven't you? Because as young practitioners, they're going to be developing all the time and creating this methodology. So it's getting enough experience packed in at the start of the career that you can have something in place that you're confident behind.
1: Yeah, and again, that's advice I always give. Is make sure not even you're know, speaking about young practitioners, even even experienced practitioners yeah. is have your methodology down in paper, but be ready to change it. Be ready to change it. Be ready to adapt to any situation because it has to has to adapt to the. And a big one for me is the culture and culture and environment. Like you said, where is your team in the the league? You know what style of football do you want to play? All of these questions need to be answered. What do you believe in as a practitioner? Um... As football because sometimes it can be a clash and I've heard this a few times that a head of sports science wants this style of football or their belief is this style of football but the coach is playing long ball or counter attack so if your methodology doesn't match what the coach matches and you're speaking different terminology although you might be together in terms of professionalism and you know you're good friends but sometimes if your football philosophy if you want to say that doesn't match there can be conflict and I've heard that a few times, you know, because you're like the head coach wants uh, light players, you know, for counter-attack football, he wants fast players, but you want to build strength and resilience and build an aerobic base. So you start your methodology like this and it conflicts or doesn't uh, impact the performance early on because that's a longer methodology than being the players light and fast and be able to compete in um, different style of football. But your methodology is trying to build them up for the future then it can be mixed messages, I guess, from the players and the coach. And although you're together, but the philosophies are not together. So you really need to align uh, with that as well. And yeah. from my there can be a real difference there. Real, real difference.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Now, Ian talks about the amazing work that's going on at Celtic and that's gone on at Celtic over the last few years in preparing players for the Champions League. And it's actually... Part of our online community as well. So recently we held a meeting up at Celtic, up at the training ground, and we had presentations from Anton McElhone, John Curry, Andy Bowles. They all presented on preparing players for the demands of the Champions League. So you can go and check out those presentations along with many other presentations that we've done over the last few years on our networking events by signing up to a free month on our community Uh, If you search footballfitfed.com and click the community tab, sign yourself up there. It'll give you a month free. After the free month, it's only £4.99 per month going forward. And make sure you go and check out all the presentations, including, like I just mentioned, the three from the guys up at Celtic. There's some unbelievable content over on the community, and make sure you make the most of it. You can also connect with over 200 practitioners from right across the world of football as well. So go and check it out. If you're not already claiming your free month, go to footballfitfed.com and sign up there on the community tab, and it'll give you a free month. Here's part two of the podcast with Ian Cole. Ian, from your experiences, like one thing I wanted to ask was across the clubs you've worked for and the coaches, is there like one instance that comes to mind if I ask where do you feel like you developed most as a coach? Oh, it's, been, it's another hard question. Jumping <laughs> on, on this stuff.
1: episode, I mean, you.
0: Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, one instance. Or, or like it, it might be a season, it might be a six-month period at a certain club under a certain manager. It might be working with a certain group of players that are in a certain situation. Like, is is there anything that sort of jumps out or have you? is there a few in mind? I'm sure there is.
1: Uh, probably a few. There's loads of moments. I just, I can't even remember what player. I think this was way back, way back at Celtic. I think maybe my second last year. I'm trying to remember, I wouldn't say the player's name. But from my own head, I'm trying to remember the player's name. But the player, I had the methodology for the gym and the pitch and the running and heart rate zones and GPS and everything. And I felt we were going the right direction, as I said. And, you know, we were doing good things. But I remember one player, you know, saying to me in the gym, it's just like, Ian, how will this help me perform in two days' time? And I was like, okay. And it was, I think it was an injury prevention program and I said look, "Look, this what we're doing today will not help you for the match in two days time but it might help you in the future and the player said to me but can't I go to the pitch and work on the pitch with my uh, coach and just do some individual work in my position which will have some of these exercises within it but with the ball and I was like yeah, yeah. You're right. And at that moment, I went home and I really thought about what I was doing. And this is what's led me to uh, doing the Masters in tactical, tactical Periodization because I was so in science and hardcore science and strength and conditioning, trying to make the players fitter, faster, faster, stronger. And I wasn't really thinking about the technical and tactical. And I know now it's more integrated, and people say they're doing, you know, they know more about tactics. But I think you have to go really, really deep as a sports scientist almost to get to the next layer to understand football at a higher level, to really understand how you're trying to develop the players. So in this moment, I changed my approach to strength and conditioning in sports science, and I solely became a football-based practitioner. And I say to all the guys that I work with now, if you can't explain to a player how that will make them better in the next performance, in the future performance, do not do that with the player. Mm do not do that exercise, do not give them that shake, do not do that stretch with them. If you can't explain to that player in that moment how that will make them better, it's better not do it. And that seems a bit maybe pie in the sky, but this became a big part of my methodology for myself, like a checklist um, when I'm designing any program or any training drill now as I progress into coaching. If I can't explain to this player this drill or this movement, how it will make them better perform in their position under their context in the next match or the future? Don't do it. And now, me for me, that's like my my checklist. Very very simple, but to reach the answer to it becomes quite complex. It's such I a key sense.
0: <laughs> no, it does. It does. I think it's such a key moment that isn't it? Because that's where the fact that you've been honest, I think the player would respect. Like, if you tried in that instance to be like, oh, it's going to do this, that and the other and basically just try and bullshit them, mm-hmm. then they'll notice it, won't they? And just be like, oh, like, why am I doing this? Yeah, well, they just
1: go do the work and go to the gym and, you know, call you every name under the sun, you know, never come back.
0: Yeah. You. Well, I, th- I think it's such a key point, isn't it? Because ple- coaches will face instances like that a lot with players. And there's going to be some players that are probably more open to questioning things than others. But I think it's a great bit of advice that you have to be ready to have that conversation because it's going to come at some point, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I actually use it now in the reverse to the players. In some instances, the players will say, you know, I want to do max strength. I want to get stronger. And I'll say, why? And they'll say, because being strong is good. I can get quicker and, um, you know, I, I can be better on the challenges and, you know, different scenarios they'll give. And I'll say, okay. I said, but do you know your current strength level? no, I don't know my current strength level. And I'll be like, do you know how strong you need to be for football? They'll be like, no. So I try and get them to answer their own question and assess their own reason for doing that work and maybe suggest something else or maybe take their suggestion on, but make sure that they realize that within their context that this this will make them better or will it make them better or haven't really thought about it. Or they just hear like, okay, if I do speed and agility three times a week, I'll become quicker on the pitch Mm-hmm. well no you won't because there's no ball there in my context there's no ball there there's no decision making there so i don't believe you will and uh, do max strength i don't believe you will if you get 250 of your max of your body weight you'll become a better football player or become more injury resistant i don't believe that but i can give you guidance in that and make sure that you're you're making the correct decision so it's like almost a checklist for the player as well you know players who want to do extra work to make sure that that extra work that they're doing, that they're utilising their time correctly um, and not wasting their time.
0: And you just said that about learning from players on their responses and and they can learn from themselves because they know a lot more than what they probably make out a lot yeah. of the time as well, don't they, when you start questioning it?
1: Yeah, I mean, we I think sometimes we're harsh on players and say ah, they're only football players and are not intelligent, you know, they don't have, you know, and that's not true. Mm. That's not true. Their level of performance, we see football intelligence, so their level of football intelligence will help you as a practitioner. If there's a trust relationship there between you and the football player, uh, which goes back to, we speak about it all the time, the human side and and being open and, and honest with the player yeah. and being respectful, um, you know, with you as well as the player being respectful back.
0: Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that again, that's something I've talked about with a lot of people that you've got to have these conversations, haven't you? Or you've got to create environments, I suppose, where you can have those conversations as well, haven't you, that, you can open it up to players like that. Because if you close and you put and you put yourself away from players and you're only in the, I suppose, the environment as coach, player, I tell you what to do, then things aren't going to be fluid. They're not the relationships the relationships aren't going to be created that way, are they?
1: No, and I think now with the academies, um the players are getting a higher education level because the coaching, I believe, is coming up with the new young coaches and the sports science levels coming up. It's more integrated with the university uh, PhD students coming through, you know, and working in clubs. So actually the level of intelligence in the football club, I think from when I started to now, is a lot higher. Yeah. Uh, Not even in the staff, but in the players, because it's transferred to the players. And the young players want to learn more and absorb more. Um, And it's one thing I've noticed here in Croatia and actually... I think I put a tweet like uh, last week. I think you've probably seen it, you know, about Croatia being a small nation, but in the semi-final of the World Cup. Yeah. People are saying, how is it possible, you know, in my own country, Scotland, you know, seven million people, you know, how how can we not compete with a, uh, a, a nation like Croatia, you know, who've got a lower population? And my assessment that is that the, the coaching, and maybe a bad thing to say, but I believe the coaching level is higher. Yeah. In terms of tactical tactical work, tactical integration at the lower levels. Uh, They seem to have a higher intelligence and understanding of tactical formations, tactical systems, um, styles of play, how to combat styles of play if you play in a different uh, formation. Their level is actually higher than, I believe, uh, in other countries. And they play multi-sports here, which I'm sure has been talked about loads of times. You know, the kids Mm -hmm. play four or five sports. My son's seven. You know, he's swimming. He's playing football and he's playing tennis Mm -hmm. every night. Okay, the climate is different, but that level of sport and acumen is really, really high. And the competition is really, really high and it's healthy. Uh, But in the football, the tactical relationship at the lower level and through their stage age is is massive compared to back home. And I think that really has a big impact on the national team. And I think they are uh, very, very competitive. They have good players, but they're very, very competitive. And you see that. In games, you know, they're always defending, they're always attacking. They never go down in a moment, psychology. Yeah. It's very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. Compared to Romania, in Bulgaria and the UK, I think it's a big, big difference in terms of the culture here.
0: You're right. They're always there or thereabouts, aren't they? Like yeah. every tournament. But they just compete. They just know how to compete.
1: And yeah. I, I I really believe it's from the multi-sports in their competition, you know they yeah. have healthy competition in every sport: handball, water polo, swimming, athletics, basketball, football. They're playing everything, mm. They're playing everything, but it's competitive. You know, I know back home we're saying, you know, that competition. There should be no winners and losers, and this is a different maybe debate. I don't want to go down that that rabbit hole, but it's I think it's a healthy debate to have in terms of yeah. you know the, the comp- It's got to be healthy competition. You know, it's got to be respectful and healthy.
0: Yeah, no, hundred percent. No, as as an Englishman, I won't mention anything about Scotland, Ian, But you could also, yeah. you could also get a slide commenting because we are recording this <laughs> days after being knocked out of the World Cup. Ah, but... uh,
1: no, I would never, never, do that. <laughs> never, never.
0: <laughs> no, I think it's really good information, that mate, and and definitely it's it's things to consider, isn't it? Because when you're looking at a size of a nation like Scotland compared to Croatia, or whoever it's going to be, yeah. there's intricacies that, that form that, isn't there? And it's not just a I suppose, a black and white answer of, of this happens for this reason. So it's really interesting to dive into that and speaking to someone like yourself who's who's there, who experiences yeah. it on a day-to-day basis, really interesting to get your point of view on it.
1: Yeah, I think the resilience in the young kids as well, you know, big resilience in the kids to play, huge resilience to play. They go out early um, to play in uh, like third division or second division, then they come back and go into the first team, but they, they really fight for the position but they really mentally fight for their position, and it's stronger than probably in Scotland when I was there. Uh, probably only one player for me was probably two: Callum McGregor now, who's a captain of Celtic, and Kieran Tierney now, at Arsenal. Uh, resilience and competitiveness was like phew, and crazy, and yeah. Kieran Tierney was like, and it's really his his strength, his superpower, if you want to say that. You know, the speaking of players to have superpowers, I and mean, that is Katie's Kieran Tierney's. Superpower, his mental strength and ability to compete in any situation—it's what's got him to where he is today. I believe.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. No, I think you see that from the outside anyway, don't you? With the way he performs. So, yeah. no, it's great. You know, I wanted to touch on as well because I think it's really interesting. Um, you're working towards a pro license, and I think I don't think we've mentioned it in. And you've referenced it a few times in the episode already, but we we chatted about it beforehand. That it was always an aim of yours, wasn't it, to get to work towards it.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, my first degree was in sports coaching, so yeah. I, I I gave up football because I was never good enough, so I played, like, semi-pro uh, junior football, and at age 21, I just thought, I'm never going to get to where I want to be, so I want to be coach, you know, I want to be that guy who's managing the team, and, you know, really enthusiastic after the playing football, and I went and did the degree, and I just thought... There's no way I can get into coaching. I don't have a coaching <laughs> band. I've got a degree. I don't have to coach football. I've got no idea. I played football. but I don't have to coach it. You know. So, I thought at that moment, what a what an enjoyment I played football. I enjoyed fitness. And mm. uh, So I'm back and did sports science, and that's how led me into you know the sports science. But I've always had that that feeling, that love for for coaching, and it's always been part of me while I've been doing sports science. So, in the last sort of couple of years. I've been doing my licence and completing my B last year and summer I should complete my A and then I'll go forward for, for the pro licence and I'm doing the tactical periodization course with Friday, the master's course there, which is an 18-month course, um, going deeper into the, the coaching and the Portuguese methodology uh, that they use because I've used it a few times and as I said, the example I gave you led me to tactical periodization that the tactics should always lead to everything you do in football. Uh, so that was a big change for me. You know, my methodology like way back all those years ago so I've tried to go deeper into that as I go into the coaching and now I'm doing a little bit of coaching as you said at the start I've got a, a dual role uh, the club just now is a coach and uh, head of fitness uh, the previous role at, at Cryover was uh, head of performance so I was involved in the methodology and the style of play the game model uh, there which was really interesting for me because that was my first attempt at working with players on game model that I was taking control of a little bit so, although the head coach was there, the, the owner's direction was that I want Ian to have this methodology and have this game model. You will ultimately oversee and pick the team and make all the decisions, but I want Ian to really lead the process. Obviously, there's space for him to, to coach and he was always coaching and we always discussed every drill, but he he wanted me to lead in case there was a coach change. Then that methodology stayed the same uh, to help the club progress over the three-year contract that I had. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, the coaching now, I'm trying to go for the A in the summer and then move to the the pro license to eventually
0: become a coach one day. Yeah, you just answered the question I was going to ask because I was going to ask you in terms of like you going through the qualifications, how has that adapted and changed your approach? You've answered that already, but looking forward, because when we jump on the next podcast, when you're in that head coach role, in three years' time, (laughs) if we look forward to that person there, but in all honesty, like, being in that position, uh, what do you feel like? Because you, your understanding of sports science, obviously working in it for all these years, is going to be different to a lot of other coaches. So how do you feel like that will impact you being in that role? Yeah, I mean, I think I've got so much to learn in the football. I've got
1: so much to learn in sports science because it changes all the time. i get so much more to learn in the football. And every time, and it's cliche, every time I learn something, you go deeper and you need to learn more and you find another layer and then you move away from that and you find another concept and for, for, that's why football is exciting because it yeah. changes and there's so many coaches out there that have different styles and philosophies that are successful and play different ways. You know, we look at Morocco now and uh, the comments and they were getting smashed in the media, you know, Morocco anti-football and Morocco this, Morocco that and he gave great quotes. You know, I th- for me, I was thinking, people, people need to reflect on football and what football is and how you win a game of football. And there's many different ways to do that. You know, and how you want football to be played is not how I want football to be played. And how you perceive a player is not how I perceive a player. Yeah. So uh, this is what makes it so excitement and it's entertainment and we switch on every night to watch it. So mm-hmm. I think me as a coach, the sports science will help me maybe cut through a lot of moments that hopefully I can solve as a coach or help the fitness coach that I'm working with, help guide the process to make the players better and not make mistakes. I think if I'm on top of the sort of sports science as a finish and move move to coaching, um, because I, my methodology now is tactical periodization. So my in my impact on sports science, what I feel the impact sports science can have has gone down. Mm-hmm. I know that doesn't sound great. because I'm still head of head of fitness, but the impact <laughs> I believe I can have. More in the the tactical and the game model and the coaching side,
0: I think can be greater for a team. Yeah, that sense. No, it does. It does. No, it's just interesting thinking about it that way around, isn't it? Because there's not that I've seen a, a trend in a lot of sports scientists that have moved over into coaching or, or trying to take work through that process. But um, and there's obviously head coaches out there that have incredible understanding of sports science as well. When you look at the Guardiola's of the world and people out like and hear them speak, like their understanding is, is crazy, isn't it? But I think it's just really interesting reflecting on it the other way around and what we, we think about it a lot of the time.
1: Yeah, and I think one thing I probably noticed here, and I don't know if this is a valid point, but when we set up drills and we look at duration, so time allocation for a drill, and in my younger years as a as a sports scientist and quite hardcore and saying we have to get certain duration, to hit certain numbers and certain heart rate response and, you know, never thinking about the football. And now when I'm doing more of the coaching and we say, okay, drills, six minutes. But that drill ultimately starts and players might not necessarily be 100%. They maybe don't understand the drill. We maybe have to stop and reset a little bit or go in coaching. So we maybe lose one and a half minutes or 45 seconds And then there'll be a moment that something else happened and you, the coach, want to step in and change. So then that impacts on the change and the duration of the time. But as a sports scientist, i say six minutes and that's it. It's just six minutes because I know the heart rate response. I know the GPS, but you don't know the coaching. You don't know the football action. You don't know the tactical component. You don't know what I'm trying to get out of the drill. So maybe that six minutes now is nine and a half minutes. And that maybe has an impact on the GPS load or the heart rate load but is that going to affect performance if we do a little bit extra each day or a little bit less because I feel I've got out the drill what I was looking for? Mm-hmm. You know, okay, there's certain parameters we want to hit within the week. We know that. But ultimately, if I, if as a coach, can't get across that tactical game model reference for the player, which will affect the performance in the next game or the future games, then for me, the drill has no relevance in terms of what the GPS response is, the heart rate response. I don't want to say as a practitioner I don't want to see it but for me the drill is not good in the first layer of what I need to achieve and that's the tactical component the game model Uh, if I hit the numbers it's it's irrelevant to me because I haven't got what I need from that drill
0: Surely at that point though with a lot of coaches, that's coming down to an honest conversation where you can you can literally talk through like what how you've just spoke between a head coach a coach an assistant coach a sports scientist you can have that discussion that's it that's going to be an environment that thrives in isn't it
1: yeah it's difficult to get to that level yeah there's a lot of a lot of conflict along the way a lot I'm of sure. conflict
0: a lot of egos going on yeah
1: they get to cut through and it, but i don't know why football's like that you know I always say to people, I only know what I know and I try to make the players in the team better. And uh, I work with anyone anywhere in the world. Um, But if it comes to a point where there's there's class and there's non-negotiables and we just don't believe on the same philosophy of how football should be played or how we should coach, then that's different. But I think you've got to be open and responsive to, to the situation. Because, again, we only train the players. Like today we had an hour and a half training session. So that's 90 minutes we have 90 minutes to improve 25 players. Yeah. And when you really think about that, as a coaching staff, there's maybe five, six coaching staff, can you touch enough players in every drill that you do to give them a tactical reference point or the drill gives them a tactical reference point and your coaching feedback gives them a tactical reference point that they feel they've improved? And this way what I see now is a lot of players get frustrated Or can be frustrating we see all the time in football you know if you're in that environment players are training wasn't good the players are frustrated the players were so who's responsible for that Mm. i think the coaches Mm. i think coaches i think we have to take responsibility because something's happened at some moment or somewhere that they don't feel they've they've got better
0: Again, it'll open up a whole different discussion, but I suppose that's where co- uh, where players sorry, start to reach out for that more individual approach from either external practitioners or whoever it is, isn't it? Because they don't feel like they're getting that.
1: Yeah, totally. If they don't feel that they've they've learned something in that moment, in those 90 minutes, they're going to go home upset because it's their job and they want to perform and they want, they're competitive athletes. Yeah. And they want to compete and they want to play. And only 11 can play and 14 don't play. So there's more that don't play than play. Yeah. So you've got to keep the ones happy that don't play and still satisfy the other ones because you know the and I've seen it so many times that the player that you think will never help you, never help you, or is not good enough, comes to the forefront and helps you. Yeah. And if you haven't spent the time developing them as a player or giving them uh, your time or making sure that they are happy within the context of each day and each drill and each tactical reference, and they know the game model as deep as a starting player,
0: then uh, you'll lose that player very quickly. Mm-hmm. Very
1: and, quickly. They're,
0: and they're also not ready, are they, to step in at that time when you need them?
1: Yeah, and then you, you see coaches shouting at them like tactical reference points. Like yeah. They've been doing drills over the other side of the pitch, or they've been doing running with the fit. Away coach. from
0: everyone. Away from yeah. everyone, Yeah. Yeah. Nate, incredible information, that absolutely yeah. class. Um, we didn't have the quick fire questions way back when in uh, March 2020, but I'm going to throw some at you now because these are what we finished the podcast with now. Okay. So I always ask who have been some of the biggest influences on your career so far? Q uh, Tierney,
1: uh, Roger Van Dyke, Brendan Rogers, and one
0: physio, uh, Marco and Ludigritz. Awesome. Some names there, mate. Some names. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Class. What would you say is your biggest strength as a practitioner, Ian? Oh,
1: Uh, maybe adaptability. Maybe adaptability could be. I hope so. I hope that's one.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And then if you were to speak to Ian who was starting out in that voluntary role at Celtic, um what would you say, what would you be your biggest bit of career advice? Uh, Don't do anything that you were going to do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Change everything that you did. (laughs) I've had this conversation the other day, you know, I was like, I cannot believe the sessions I did at Celtic. I cannot believe, I'm not saying they weren't good, I, I think they were good, but I, just in terms of
0: philosophy and methodology, I just think, wow, I really did that. I really did do that. <laughs> well, then again, this comes to the point that we made, isn't it? I, I feel in a way you have to do that. And you have to have a time when you reflect, when you go, oh, my God, I can't believe I did that. Because it, it makes you, one, appreciate what you're doing so much now and, and you're understanding now. But you learn so much along the way as well, don't you?
1: Yeah. For, and sports science changes and football changes. Yeah. Though, and- I always say, if you if you have a methodology whether I agree or don't agree, if you're passionate and it's researched and you can deliver it, you know, then go for it. And yeah. you might think you've made a mistake along the way, you might not have, you know, because this guy's doing some things that I did at Celtic are still doing them now that I is a mistake, but they're being successful. Yeah, and they're being successful. They're competing in Europe, so I can't say what they're doing is wrong. Uh, it's just for me, I, I don't think it's correct, and I could have done better. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I always say as long as you have your methodology written down you have it researched you're speaking to other practitioners uh, you have passion to deliver that and you can communicate to the the coaches and the players the reason why you're doing it for whatever it is it can be you've got to do 100 press ups 3 times a week as stupid as that may sound but if that's your methodology and you really believe in that then I think you've got to deliver it whether you might think it's a mistake in the future or not you've got to have that passion and research and communication with people and being open and honest to, to deliver it the best you can.
0: Yeah, 100%. Final one, mate. What's your approach to CPD, continued learning now? Obviously, you've got the, the licenses that you've been working through, but what's your general approach to continually progressing as a practitioner?
1: Well, I think we have to. It's fundamental, you know. I mean, I'm moving to coaching now. As I said, I'm doing my license plus the tactical periodization with, with Friday, which is an 18-month course. And I speak to coaches all the time that I've worked with, and some coaches even in Brazil that I worked two months with at, at Ludigates. So I still speak to them constantly. I still go on courses, I still speak to and deliver on courses. So for me, it's we need to be open to to go and listen to people, yeah. even if you think that you don't believe in it. But go and listen and take something from it because it might come back in the future that, well, I listened to that guy say that 18 months ago and you know I know what he's talking about. And I believe in it or I don't believe in it. And these are the reasons why. And I think we we really have to be, as practitioners, not only sports science, but as football, you know, try to develop ourselves Because we're asking the players to develop. So we can't just stay here and the players go here. Like I said, I think the young players and young coaches and young staff coming up now are a higher level almost. Yeah. uh, Because their education is different. It's a different education system. Uh, So we have to now stay... The forefront user. I hope I'm not going to put myself in this box of the old no dinosaur, but we can't stay as a, a, a dinosaur, you know. And the young guys have got all the knowledge, and you know, we've stayed at the same
0: methodology our same reference point for, for so many years. Great advice, being absolutely classmate. If if people want to reach out, um, you said about your Twitter before, do you, do you want to give the handle, or is there anywhere else that you want? Or yeah. you direct people to, to yeah, go? Yeah, they can
1: find me on Twitter.
0: I actually don't even know my handle.
1: I'm not like one of these Twitter. Search your name, search your name. We'll put it in the show notes as well. I think it's Ian Call ATP, but you'll find me there and you'll find me on LinkedIn. Okay. You'll find me on LinkedIn as well, mate. Ian Call on LinkedIn. Uh, I use LinkedIn and Twitter. They can contact me. Anyone can reach out. I'm always open. Uh Emails or phone calls to answer any questions or help someone out there. I feel it's important for for me in my role uh, with all those years if I can help one person
0: uh, it's great for me it's a reward as well it's not just the helping the players top class I appreciate you coming back on and fingers crossed for a Croatia win as well because I'm sure that will have a huge impact in the country
1: yeah it's crazy over here when they win games it's
0: yeah but...
1: people jumping in the water it's madness, madness. Yeah. it's great it's great to really experience it and I As you mentioned before, I'm Scottish. It's not normal for me (laughs) to World Cup. Again, that didn't come from me. (laughs) (laughs) 1998 was the last time we played Brazil in the opening match. I remember it so clearly. (laughs) It was great to get that experience, you know, and just be part of the World Cup scene here. It's
0: amazing. Yeah, fingers crossed, mate. And also, best of luck for the rest of the season here. Thanks, Ben. Cheers
1: for having us on, mate. Have a good one.
0: I hope you enjoyed that episode with Ian. I certainly did. I think we could have recorded for a a lot longer than what we did, and there was obviously topics within the podcast that we could have expanded on, but I think we covered some really, really key information in that episode, or Ian certainly did anyway. So big thank you to him for coming on. Go and check him out. He was right with his Twitter. He's at ATP over on Twitter. Go and give him a follow, and also you can connect with him over on LinkedIn as well. I think takeaways... One of the ones that we didn't actually touch on or expand on too much in the episode, but I wrote it down as soon as he mentioned it, is that he took that break in his career because his son being born. So I think he mentioned about having eight months out um, with the move to Dubai and just a bit of time to reflect. And I think that is really, really important. And it's something that I've spoke to quite a few people about recently in terms of people starting families and stuff and having that reflection time. Um, And if you're in in a situation where you can do that I think it is really key and it's obviously that also gave Ian the reflection time to one um, reflect on the the work that he's done and maybe his approach going forward Um, but two it, it changed his route a little bit then he went to work at the countries that he mentioned under different practitioners and maybe just changed the landscape of his career a little bit as well so a really important time. And then he also said about that reflection time that he was able to see problems quicker from coming out of it. So reflecting on what you've done, mistakes you've made, but lessons you've learned along the way. And that was an, um, something that came out of a result of having that time. Ian mentioned that he, he was able to see and act on problems a lot quicker than before as well. One of the biggest messages I think that he that he was pushing on the podcast was sticking to your process. So having your non-negotiables, having your processes and your ways of working, they will be, they will, will even be challenged by, like you mentioned, players, coaches, um, especially if clubs are going through tough periods uh, where the form's maybe not the best or there's injuries coming. But having those processes in place and having really strong rationales behind those as well So I think if you don't have them in place as a practitioner, that needs to be something that you need to be working on to try and get that in place. So they were my takeaways. There was loads more on it as well, but I had to really narrow it down. Um, But I really, really thoroughly enjoyed the, the chat with Ian and I'll definitely be getting him on again soon and I hope you did too. A big thank you to everyone recently that went over and left us a review as well over on iTunes. It does massively help the podcast. So please, if you haven't done it already, Just search Football Fitness Federation over on um, either your podcast app or Apple and just leave us a, a short review. Click the five stars. It does massively help us out. So if you haven't done it already, please head over and do that. But again, huge thank you for listening. Thank you for the support. And we'll be back next week in episode 218.